Cryptozoology, the search for and study of animals whose existence is disputed or unsubstantiated. Most of us have heard of these kinds of creatures, like the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. And it seems to us that in this day and age there is no way that an unknown megafauna could possibly be out in the world. But consider this. The thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, a large carnivorous marsupial that once roamed over the entirety of Australia, but was driven to extinction by men and dingo dogs. The last one known to be in captivity in 1936, but every year there are sightings in the highlands of Tasmania of this creature. The okapi, a herbivore that looks like a cross between a zebra and a giraffe, was thought to be a legend among the people of the Congo River Basin until one was captured and brought to Europe in 1901. Despite legends among the people of equatorial Africa, the gorilla wasn't believed to exist except in a Carthaginian legend dating from 500 BC that talked of a hairy tribe of men who lived on the continent. It was not until the mid-1800s that the existence of lowland gorillas was confirmed and the mountain gorilla wasn't discovered until 1902. Odds would have it that there has to be another species out there that we have not yet confirmed. There are reports of giant plesiosaurs, these are aquatic dinosaurs like the Loch Ness Monster, in rivers of Georgia, the northwest coast of the United States, in the lakes of Idaho and Utah, Lake Erie, Chesapeake Bay, and Lake Champlain, as well as in Russia, Australia, and Africa. In Ireland, there's the legend of a giant otter, the Dohar Ku, in Glenade Loch and Loch Erin. There have been reports of a giant anaconda, 40 foot long, that feeds on crocodilian and dolphin species as well as men in the Amazon basin. Every year there are giant black cats reportedly sighted in England including the Beast of Bottom in Cornwall and the Beast of Exmoor in Devon and Somerset. In Puerto Rico there is the vampiric Chupacabra. There's the Jersey Devil in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. In West Virginia and Pennsylvania there is the Mothman. And in the Mississippi River Valley and westward there is the Thunderbird. And then there are the wild hominids, like Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest. In the United States, we have the Fook Man in Arkansas, the Honey Island Swamp Man in Louisiana, the Lizard Man of South Carolina, the Beast of Bray Road in Wisconsin, the Mogollon Man of Arizona, the Ozark Howler in Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, the Skunk Man in Florida. And these wild men are reported around the globe, in the Caucasus, Altai, and Pamir Mountains of Central Asia. There are the Almas. In Pakistan, the Barmanu. In Vietnam, the Batutat. In Singapore, there is the Monkey Man. The Orangabadi in Indonesia, and the Orangomawa in Malaysia. In China, they tell of the Yaren and the Bear Man, both of which roam 
the mountains in the western part of that country. And then there's the most famous of all cryptological species, the Yeti, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. In 1832, a British explorer named Hodgson in Nepal saw a bipedal animal with long hair walking deliberately, but not hurriedly, away from his party. Another British explorer reported seeing the large human-like footprints in the snow during his expedition to Tibet. In 1921, a British Mount Everest exploratory expedition found tracks that their Sherpa guide said belonged to the bear man of the mountains. In 1925, N.A. Tambazi, a member of the Royal Geographical Society, claimed he saw a creature in the Indian Himalayans at about 15,000 feet altitude. He observed the creature from a distance of about two to three hundred yards for over a minute. He wrote, Unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to pull at some plants. It showed up dark against the snow, and as far as I could make out, it wore no clothes. In 1937, Frank Smythe took the first known photographs of alleged Yeti footprints. In 1951, Sir Eric Shipton, while trying to ascend Mount Everest, took photos of Yeti tracks at 20,000 feet. In 1953, while on their historic ascent, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay found Yeti tracks on the slopes of Mount Everest. In 1960, Sir Edmund Hillary returned to the Himalayas in an effort to find irrefutable evidence of the Yeti, but he was unsuccessful. The last reported sighting of a Yeti came in 1970 when British mountaineer, while climbing the Annapura Massif, claimed he saw a Yeti walking bipedal and sometimes on all fours. There have been numbers and numbers of hoaxes over the years. They have been disproven. There have been a number of television and theatrical films made on the subject, of course, none of which have told us any more than we knew before 1970. But I've seen the Yeti. I finally discovered on a day in January in Colorado. It was big and bold and delicious. This is episode 37. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Hello everyone, welcome to the Bruise Traveler, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I am the scratchy-voiced Alan Tatman, and uh, I'm still dealing with this crud that has been with me now for a month. Uh, I, I get better. I try to get back into my regular schedule. 
then I backslide into it. It gets worse. And then I rest and I get better. But my voice, even when I'm feeling better, like I am today, it's still got this gravelly quality and sounds, uh, pretty bad. It's much worse in the mornings, believe you me. But, uh, this right now is about as good as it gets. So, uh, let's get through this episode and, uh, then uh, Marilee and I are flying to New York tomorrow, uh, along with some of our friends, uh, Brian and Sheila and John and Gyla. Uh, we're heading to New York for the weekend. We're going to go see To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. And <clears throat> while I'm in Gotham, we're going to head over across the East River to Brooklyn Brewery and check that place out, listed as one of the best craft brewers in the United States by so many people. So uh, we'll have a report from there in the near future. But this week, um, I've got a conversation with freelance journalist Tony Rehagen a couple of weeks ago about craft brewing in Mexico. Way down here, you need a reason to move. Yes. Uh, but before we get to this week's uh, interview, I have an announcement. <clears throat> get my best voice on here. Patty Malone's Irish Pub, in conjunction with the Brews Traveler and Wild Irish Productions, is proud to present Gaelic Storm in concert Thursday, August 29th at the Mill Bottom Event Center here in Jefferson City. Uh, tickets haven't been worked out yet, but uh, just as soon as they are available, we'll let you know right here on the podcast, also on the Facebook page, and over on the Pub's Facebook page. Gaelic Storm the soundtrack for the Bruce Traveler podcast. Watch this space for more details, or better yet, listen. Uh, this will be the band's fourth visit to Jefferson City, and if it's uh, anything like the past, it's going to be Fantastic. We've heard a rumor, even, that uh, Boulevard Brewing is going to get involved uh, and become a sponsor, a corporate sponsor of the concert. So keep listening to the podcast, and I'll tell you more details as they come to fruition. This week on the interview, I talked to Matt Sandy. He's the marketing director of Great Divide Brewing of Denver, Colorado. And, uh, they have been putting out quality craft beers for a quarter of a century. And uh, I'll tell you, if I could manage it, I think I'd move to Colorado and stay there. Not only is it beautiful, but there's just so much great craft brewing and craft breweries and people that are doing craft brewing out there. It's really fantastic. I loved both visits I had there in the past year, and I'm... Uh, Guaranteeing that I'll be going back again in the not-too-distant future. So, let's get on with it. Here's Matt Sandy with Great Divide Brewing, and this is your interview of the week. Hello, everybody. We're in the River North District of Denver, Colorado at the Great Divide Barrel Bar with 
Great Divide Brewing Company and the marketing manager, Matt Sandy. Matt, thanks so much for sitting down with us this afternoon. Definitely. Thanks for being here. This is a really good beer. The sour. Strawberry rhubarb Whoa, sour. Strawberry yeah. rhubarb. Yeah. I hate rhubarb, but I love this. <laughs> yeah, this is really good. The rhubarb gives it a little earthiness, nothing too vegetal, right. but it's just a, we call it almost a gateway sour, because um, a lot of people come in, they don't like, they think they don't like sour beers, and you know, this one's more tart than sour, and it's, it's typically the number one or number two draft beer we have at really? both of our tap rooms yeah that's fantastic yeah definitely. I, it's amazing how the sours have grown so much in the industry mm -hmm. uh i i tell people now oh i don't like sour beer or i don't like ipa yeah and i say when was the last time you tried an ipa yeah. and how many times did you try an yeah. ipa same thing with sours yeah yeah, there's a beer out there that you would like if you kept trying them. You know, if your first sour experience like mine, I remember trying, I think it was a Duchess de Borgione, that very classic Flanders red. Right. Tried it, I was like, this isn't beer. What is this, you know? And uh, it took me a while. That was probably 12 years ago, but uh, I've since come around quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, they, they've taken on. I'm, in the summertime, I typically drink almost nothing but sours. Yeah. Uh, okay. I saw that up there. I said, okay, I have to try it before I move on to a Yeti. Yeah, and exactly. So, um, so how long have you been here with Great Divide? Uh, I've been here a little over two years now. And how did you get involved in the craft brew business? Um, so I started off in media. I worked in print for a long time, and then print kind of died, so I moved to the digital side. And um, I started writing more and more about craft beer. And then I had a friend who was opening a brewery in Denver, and I was somewhat involved with that and sort of got a glimpse of what working in craft beer was like. And then um, I started applying for some jobs. Uh, I figured why just write about it, why not be more involved? And so I uh, applied for a position here. Uh, it was in events and um, it was events and sponsorships uh, position. And then uh, when the marketing manager moved on, I took that position over and you know now kind of have my hands in a lot of different aspects of the brewery. How long have you been with uh, Great Divide? Uh, it was actually two years, probably last week. Right. Yeah. Now, now, the founder of Great Divide, Brian Dunn. Yes. All right. Tell us a little bit about his story and how he got this all started. Yeah, Brian Dunn moved to Colorado and went to school out here. Um, got a master's degree from Denver, uh, University of Denver. Uh, after that, he subsequently, subsequently went to Africa and was helping on developing countries over there, like building farms. He was very into international development. Um, but through his life, uh, food and drink, good food and drink were always part of his family's kind of time together. And uh, when he was in Africa, he also traveled in Europe, drank a lot of good, uh, you know, Belgium and German beers. And when he came back to Denver, he kind of saw a lack of anything resembling what he was accustomed to. This was in the mid-90s? This was in, yeah, early 90s. Okay. I think he was back in Denver. Um, at that point, we had uh, Wine Coop Brewing, which was started by our former governor, right. Hickenlooper, who now may or may not be running for president. 
Um, so there was that. Beer in 2020. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw him pouring a pint at a at Des Moines brewery recently, actually. So yeah. he's definitely making yeah. that foray. Yeah, if they, if they, I don't know. Yeah, if they show up in Iowa and New Hampshire this early on. Yeah, yeah. I know. You know they're at yeah. least thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, putting the feelers out. But um, so Wine Coop Brewing was around. Um, Brian saw the need for a brewery. Um, or that Denver could definitely support another brewery. So he put a business plan together, rounded up some investors, got a grant from the city, um, and ended up signing a lease on a former uh, dairy processing plant in the heart of Denver, which is now the ballpark area, but at that point it was abandoned buildings and um, pretty derelict, actually. Uh, of course, the Rockies hadn't come in yet, right? so Coors Field was they were in the still, works. They were still playing at Mile High They at played that time. at Mile High their first season, and Brian opened the original Great Divide in 1994, and that was subsequently the, la- the first uh, Rocky season, so that was just fortuitous because when the Rockies are playing, we're slammed. It's just a great position. It's a great place to go before a game, after a game. So, opened that brewery in 1994 and was eventually allowed to uh, open or to purchase the entire building. So, he owns that and has slowly been expanding it over there. And um, about four years ago, well, probably five or six years ago, realized that if he wanted to continue to grow, he needed another facility because we are kind of fenced in by other buildings. We put in a tank farm outside. Not, not to mention that the real estate down there now, yeah. it was a lot more now than it was when he first sure. bought in. For sure, yeah. yeah. So we did one neighbor we could have asked and one to sell. So um, Brian started looking for another location to because we wanted to expand into canning. Uh, we have a bottling line at the old facility, original facility, and um, he was very Denver-focused. He knew he wanted to stay in Denver. We certainly could have done the building you're in now for a lot cheaper had we gone further afield. Sure. But Brian wanted to stay in the downtown. Wanted felt it was important for Great Divide to be Denver's brewery to keep operations in Denver. So. In 2015, we opened this location, uh, which is about a mile from the original location. And even then, Rhino, where you're sitting in now, that is, you know, Denver and America's hippest city or like brewery town, USA. um, There wasn't a lot of that when we opened this facility, but since then, it's blossomed there. I think 14 other adult beverage producers here in Rhino. So it's very cool. I spoke to your neighbors down the street. Uh, yesterday, um, um, ratio. Oh yeah, ratio. Yeah. That's they, a great place. I told them. I said I'm trying to get in here uh-huh. tomorrow, and uh, they said, "Oh, they love. They yeah. They. I guess you guys all work together yeah, on projects." Yeah, we have. Um, so Rhino Art District is a nonprofit that kind of like oversees the entire area. Within that, we have Drink Rhino, right. which is distilleries, cideries, breweries, and um, two wineries even. Um, so we've all banded together. We put on some events. We raise money to kind of make the neighborhood safer, bring in some infrastructure, because as you can see, a lot of it is still- Still quite, in development. Quite, yeah, quite uh, industrial still. Right. 
You have two the two locations. You yeah. mentioned, well, of course, we're here at the Barrel Bar, which mm -hmm. that's the newest. When was this opened? Uh, 2015. 2015. Yeah. So going on four years. And the Arapahoe Boulevard, is it Arapahoe Boulevard? Or Arapahoe? Yeah, Arapahoe Boulevard. Arapahoe Boulevard down by... Uh, down by the Rockies ballpark, uh -huh. Coors Field. What is the basic difference in the two facilities? I know they have different uses yeah. in the process of, of, of your manufacturing process. Mm. Um, so the original brewery continues to be the only place we're brewing. Um, so all brewing operations still happen at Arapahoe. Okay. We have a canning line, or sorry, a bottling line and a kegging line there. But we have our canning line over here at um, the Brighton facility. So this is a purely packaging facility. Um, I'll show you around after this, but we have two 500-barrel uh, Bright tanks. And so we'll bring beer over, and uh, we have a tanker. Right. Uh, so we tanker beer over here, finishes here, and then we can keg or can uh, from those bright tanks. And um, you know, it adds definitely adds an interesting kink to the brewing process. Right. We have one of our brewers is a, a trans transition specialist. So his job is to get beer from Arapo over here. You know. Whenever you're moving beer from tank to tank to tank, there's much more opportunity for infection for or for contamination. contamination. Yeah. So uh, we have someone whose sole job pretty much is to ensure the beer makes it over here and then into kegs or cans without you know any effects from having to move the beer from point A to point B. So it's that's kind of an important thing. Anybody yeah. that ever did any home brewing, no, yep. yeah. transferring beer is is yeah. where things usually go wrong. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, why Denver? I guess because Brian came to school here and he just yeah. fell in love with the town. Yeah, Brian grew up in Vermont, okay. actually. So, you know, and it's funny, I went to college in Vermont and I grew up in Pennsylvania. And when I moved back to Pennsylvania, I was like, man, I need to get back closer to mountains. So, didn't want to go back up to Vermont, so came to Colorado. And I think Brian sort of had a similar experience right. where he came to Colorado, fell in love with the state. He's a huge skier, a big uh, cyclist. So a lot of that going on out here. And when he moved back to the States, he knew Denver was a place where he wanted to put down roots. I bet I have 10 to 12 people that I was, that I was in college or graduate school with that moved to Colorado. Yeah. And they're all the place. Yeah. And, you know, uh, had I done that, I probably would have gotten hooked too, but they sent me and I, I went, ended up going to Texas instead, which nothing against <laughs> Texas, but uh, it's a whole other country. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> and and uh, Colorado is just absolutely beautiful, yes, stunningly beautiful. It is. Yeah. So, the name, Great Divide. I think yeah. I know this is pretty much it's self explanatory. Yeah. We're just a few miles from the Great Divide up on the. Estes Park, Rocky yep, Mountain. Yep, so yeah, the Continental Divide kind of runs the, the course of the Rockies and the Great Divide, also another name for that. And we're within, you can be at one point on the Continental Divide in about an hour without traffic. So, right. and um, yeah, it's just kind of cool, cool, uh, cool name. We've had some fun with it too. Um, yeah, so just a nod to our location. Your portfolio. Yeah. The Yeti plan. Yes. yes. Explain how that all came about. <laughs> um, so 
the original Yeti was actually called Maverick, and Brian Dunn had several beers. There was like Maverick IPA, Maverick Stout, I think there was another one. Ran into some naming issues with another brewery that was also using the Maverick name, so he uh, we needed to change the name, and this is, you know, a decade ago or so. Um, and Yeti was kind of this mythical beast. Right. Um, just, you know, we're in the mountains, and every culture kind of has their own sort of... Wild like, man of the forest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So, and our beers, one thing I think that is important to note about Great Divide, like when Brian started it, his mission was to brew big, bold beers. Um, no one else was doing that at the time in Colorado, or in Denver at least. And um, so... What is big and bold? What's bigger and bolder than a Yeti? Right. So, um, and it's kind of taken off since then. And yeah. it's easier to spell than Sasquatch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but we do have a lot of people that are like, I'll take the Bigfoot beer, the Sasquatch right, beer. And right. It's a Yeti. So yeah, Yeti outside of Colorado is our highest selling beer. And so, tell us about some of your other more famous beers. You, yeah. I know you do a lot of different seasonals yeah. and whatnot, yeah. but. What are, what are some of your, what do you would say, flagships? So, definitely Denver Pale Ale. That's something we're very proud to have the name to. Um, that's been brewed since 1999. Um, about four years ago, we updated the recipe a little bit. The original was uh, English-style pale ale. Mm -hmm. And as Americans became more accustomed to hot profiles and their palates changed, right. and they were looking for more of the piney, bitter kind of uh, IPAs or pale so looking for something with a bigger hop profile, we tweaked the recipe a little bit to make it more of an American pale ale. Um, and the cool thing about that beer is that uh, when we changed the recipe, we also changed the design on it, and that was number one in our artist series. So every year we partner with another local artist, and they design the can, and so we unveil a new can every year around June. So that's something we do to kind of keep that beer fresh and new and exciting. Right. Um, but it is just kind of like a classic pale ale, good, you know, post-shift beer. Um, we definitely sell a lot of that in Denver and Colorado. Um, beyond that, our most popular IPA is Titan IPA. That's a classic West, West Coast, Coast style, West Coast right. style IPA. Um, Yeti, it's the Imperial Stout we mentioned. And then um, Colette, <clears throat> Colette uh, is a, a farmhouse style ale that's also extremely popular. It has been the number one selling Saison farmhouse beer uh, in Colorado for some time. So those four um, are definitely our most popular flagship beers. We've introduced a couple more year-round beers like Claymore Scotch Ale. Um, Hercules is our double IPA. Um, the strawberry uh, rhubarb sour you were drinking right. uh, was a year-round beer. But we're actually switching that. That was currently in 22-ounce uh, bottles. But we're going to switch that to 12-ounce uh, cans. Nice. Yeah. And then... I might have to take one of those. Yeah, home. definitely. And then um, Heyday Modern IPA was a IPA we put out last summer when people were sort of 
trending towards the New England style, hazy, right. juicy IPAs. We wanted something that was similar to that, but not, but that was more drinkable. So we came up with kind of a, called it a modern IPA, sort of a hybrid West Coast New England style where you not get, real thick, not just super a little thick, hazy, yeah, juicy, tropical, citra, mosaic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we actually use this. Uh, Five hop or yeah. seven hops from five different continents, yeah. I think. So we've got yeah. um, European hops, American hops, Australian, New Zealand, and South African hops in there. So it's a lot going on in That'll beer. be my next one. Yeah, have to try right. that one. It's just five, five and a half percent, so sessionable IPA. Good. Annual production. You're, you guys are well over 30,000 barrels a year. We are uh, north of 30,000, not too far north of 30,000. Uh, I think 2018, we haven't quite wrapped, but I would guess we're yeah. around 32, 33,000. Yeah, the Brewers Association, they haven't put out the numbers yet, but yeah. 2017, I think you guys were 36 and Yeah, a, and we change. were somewhere around there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we were, we didn't. We weren't quite where we wanted to be in 2018, but I don't think that's any different than right. a lot of breweries our no. size. We're all market so competitive these it days. It is. It's yeah. very competitive, and you know, maintaining market shares like it's yeah. it's going to become, I think, the new challenge oh, ahead sure. down the road. Distribution. What yeah. states do you guys go to? Well, we are in 30 states right now, and we're launching in Wyoming and Southern Idaho in February. So we'll be in 32 states and I believe eight countries. You can actually get Yeti Imperial Stout in Nepal, uh, which is kind of fun. So Yeti, <laughs> Yeti's in his homeland. Um, but yeah, we're, our beers are popular in Scandinavian countries. Uh, we're in, we just launched in France. You can find our beer in Italy, China. Um, so we wow. do have an international footprint. That's got to be a whole different set of headaches international marketing yep. and sales. I'm glad I do not have to deal with much of that. <laughs> you know, we are international, the distributors we partner with know what they're doing. It would right. be hard for us to just make some calls to Italy right. and try and figure out what that is. So we partner with distributors that have experience bringing in American craft beers to that market. They know all the people. They can tell. They can easily be like, "Hey, we need X, Y, and Z from you," and that's all you need to do. And they kind of handle everything on the other side. But I find it fascinating that beer brewed here at our facility uh, that leaves our dock can be in France within 20 to 30 days. Yeah. That the is. logistics behind it just yeah. blow my mind. Yeah. You guys are involved in a lot of charitable and uh, community uh, causes. Yeah. Uh, just a few of them, a couple of them. That you're... Yeah. We, um, Great Divide's always been very interested in giving back to the community. So we like to find local nonprofits that have similar sort of mission or ethos as Great Divide. And uh, we've supported, you know, environmental causes. Um, food shortage, uh, nonprofits that deal with kind of like food shortages, um, vulnerable populations, a lot of outdoor geared uh, nonprofits getting kids out into the uh, great outdoors, and uh, 
also some music and arts one. So one we're currently doing and we've done for four years is Levitt Pavilion, which is a, a national nonprofit. I think they're in five or six cities, and but each city kind of operates on its own. And the Denver Levitt Pavilion is a mostly free outdoor amphitheater uh, in one of our great parks here in Denver and they bring in about 50 free shows every year and a couple pretty big paid shows so we partner with them they sell great divide down there they give they do a lot for the community they're in uh, they bring music to a lot of people which we're we're a big fan of um, the other ones some other big ones uh, we we've teamed with Habitat for Humanity right. for a couple years on a Hops for Homes project. And basically that's about, I think we had 30 breweries last year in Denver, all band together. We did a bunch of different tap room fundraising events. And then we had one big uh, brew, uh, beer festival here at Great Divide. And all that money went towards building a home for uh, a family in need. And the cool thing about that was we all got to go to a brew day, so like 30 people from Great Divide went down, wore hard hats, you know, we laid subfloor in 90 degree weather and all had a new appreciation for uh, construction after that. <laughs> Yeah, there was one more you mentioned earlier. Oh, Turkey Trot. Yeah. So, you, yeah. yeah, that's Mile High United Way. Uh, I think we've sponsored the Turkey Trot, which is their big five, it's actually a 6K, I believe. Um, happens every Thanksgiving in Wash Park. Tracks almost 100,000 people. Um, it's, for Mile High United Way, uh, we show up with our draft trailer. We provide all the beer for uh, post-race. You know, uh, you got to get your your carbs. Got to get your in. carbs. Yeah, back. exactly. So we provide a lot of carbs on <laughs> on, <laughs> on Thanksgiving. It's a very fun family event. It starts, you know, around nine, and by noon, one o'clock. Everyone's cleared out because they're all going to Thanksgiving dinner, and you feel like you can eat a little bit more because you did that run yeah. in the morning. So you've been involved in this uh, as a journalist and then as a marketing guy for a few years. Yeah. Is there something about the industry that just really surprised you or um, maybe you didn't expect? This might not come as a surprise, but and I knew it was present, but the collaborative spirit of craft brewing continues to blow my mind. I mean, we talked about how competitive everything is, mm -hmm. but even, even though the market is so competitive, we can all kind of put that aside, brew beers together, support the same causes, help each other out with ingredients, you know, we've got extra Cascade hops, you've got some extra, you know, Centennial, let's do a trade, you know, there's not, you know, there's, the competition happens on, on the sales side, and even those guys all know each other, you know. Right. Um, what happens at the brewery, between brewers, right. between everyone, is just very friendly. Uh, we're very fortunate to have an extremely helpful and strong Brewers Guild. The Colorado Brewers Guild is always looking to uh, work on our behalf, whether it's lobbying or you know getting clarification on different regulation and rules, but also bringing people together. They sponsor beer. There's a great festival that's coming up in March called Collaboration Fest, and that features. Um, 
mainly Colorado breweries, and we have the ability to collaborate with one in-state brewery and then one out-of-state brewery or even an international brewery. So that brings together all of the big names in pretty much craft beer worldwide, and we all brew together. Is that sponsored by the Brewers Association? They are the beneficiary for it, yeah. All right, I'll look up. I'd like to... See if I could attend that. Yeah, for that sure. would be pretty cool. It's mid March. It's one of my uh, favorite festivals. Yeah. Oh wait, man! I own an Irish pub. Uh, yeah. Mid March. Uh, well, uh, it's I, not quite on St. Patrick's uh, Day. What am I going to be doing? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think it's the weekend before St. Patrick's well, Day. If the, I could. Well, no, we have our parade. Never okay. mind. Okay. <laughs> Anything coming down the the road with Great Divide that. Uh, the people out there might like to know about? Yeah, we are very excited uh, by the fact that we're opening an outpost in Denver International Airport. So we'll be the third brewery in DIA. Um, we're taking over the spot of a former brewery, um, but we will have an outpost right on Concourse C, which is the Southwest Terminal. Um, so. Very excited about that. Opening mid-February, we'll have 16 taps, I believe, and then also some great food. So that's that's going to be huge. We can be the first first beer you drink and the last beer you drink when you're coming in or leaving town. That's so, cool. Yeah, and then we've got uh, Craft uh, Brewers Conference coming up in April. It's going to be in Denver, so we'll be doing some uh, cool stuff for that. And... Probably biggest of all is our 25th anniversary party coming up in June. Okay. June 22nd, uh, our anniversary parties we used to do at the original location, so we're bringing it back there. We're going to close down the street, we're going to have bands, have a big old block party, it'll be a lot of fun. Sounds like it's going to be a great time. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited and a little nervous about it, but, uh, you know, well, good we'll get luck. it figured out. Good luck, Matt. And thank you. I hope the 25th anniversary goes off without a hitch. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for taking time to sit down with us today. And no problem. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. There's a little beer in there. I won't yeah. give a hell. <laughs> Thanks again to Matt and the staff at the Barrel Bar of Great Divide Brewing. Some fantastic beer, uh, great hospitality. Uh, I wish I could have brought more of it home with me, so there's another reason to go back. Uh, after the interview, Matt got back to me with a couple of notes of clarification. Um, firstly, the original brewery is on Arapahoe Street, not Arapahoe Boulevard. I kind of misled him there, I think, myself. And the bright tanks are 300 barrels each. Matt thought he may have misspoke and claimed they were 500. But 300, 500, Matt. If that's the biggest mistake of a statement that you ever make, then there's no way you're ever going to be able to run for president of the United States, uh, let alone hold that office. Great Divide has two fantastic locations in Denver. The original brewery is in the Ballpark neighborhood at 2201 Arapahoe Street. And the new Barrel Bar is in the Rhino neighborhood at 1812 35th Street. Besides beers, they have tours, and while they do not have a kitchen, they do have a food truck schedule. If you want to see what's on tap, take a tour, what hours the places are open, or anything else that you might need to know about Great Divide, you can check them out on Facebook at Great Divide Brew or on their website, 
GreatDivide.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 yeah. ha, hey. Cardion Scalabuco. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. How are you, Tony? Doing well. How are yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, we glad when winter's over. So. Yeah, a couple months. Any, any, any day now. <laughs> yeah, well, this week we kick off St. Patrick's Week. So that's that's one harbinger of spring. So, Hell yeah. yeah. Um, you got something that you were telling me about earlier today. Uh, something I don't know nothing about. And so I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, importing craft beer into the United States from Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of warmer climes, I mean, anytime you think about Mexican-style beers, you, you think of pretty much not very sophisticated light lagers and, and lots and lots of lime, you know, right. to, to, to cram it in there. Tecate, Corona, Sol, Pacifico, Modelo, Dos Equis. Um, and, and they definitely have their place. I'm a big fan. Those are the kind of beers you can kind of just pound. I mean, obviously, when you go to the Mexican restaurant or when you're out in the sun or on the beach, I mean, the Corona has really been effective, especially effective with their marketing as far as like making it seem like the beer of, of, of just kicking back and relaxing. And, and the lime, it kind of gives you that it gives you that that excuse to kind of sweeten up your beer. If, if you're if you're worried about looking a little, you know, weak with it, it it's, right. it's, it's acceptable with Mexican beer. Uh, but what's interesting is that in Mexico, they're they're pervasive, too. I mean, in, it, as recently as 2015, only one percent of that of the market in Mexico was craft compared to the 12 percent in the U.S., um, and according to Food and Wine, uh, as early as 2008, there were only 20 craft beer, uh, craft breweries in the entire damn country. Uh, mm. So it's definitely about you know 20 years behind us. Uh, but just like 20 years behind us, that's changing. Uh, like everywhere else, uh, the, the availability of these beers, uh, you know, there these craft beers are taking off. There, people are having more of a taste for different things, a taste for flavor. Uh, and I mean, just like everything else that's popular around our borders that that's going to have to find their way into here. Right. Um, and so I saw in USA today, I just saw a, uh, an article where three former, uh, Anheuser-Busch execs and a Mexican entrepreneur, uh, started quest beverage, uh, with eyes of bringing the Mexican craft beer to the States. Um, so far, uh, they've introduced four beers, uh, in Houston and throughout Missouri, weirdly enough, um, in California, Illinois, and the rest of Texas are just now getting, getting a taste of them. Really? Yeah. I would say, well, the Missouri Connections, because one of the execs from AB uh, is lives here. Yeah, well, the the company is based there because three of them are still based here, and I think it's because of that infrastructure. I think I think okay. I think Missouri kind of is that way too, just because right. that's how Anheuser Busch had done it, to where you know Missouri drinkers may be a little bit more receptive to seeing some slightly different beers out there. Obviously, they, they still gravitate towards one or the other, but I mean. Anytime AB would come out with one of their, you know, different different products, we'd be one of the first ones to see it. Whether sure. it be Tequiza, if you want to bring up bad memories. Oh, bad, um, bad, bad, terrible <laughs> memories. But yeah, these these are different. But yeah, so it, it is interesting with Missouri. But yeah, California obviously makes sense. Texas, uh, those places. Um, but what's interesting about these is like it's not your typical Mexican lager. It's not like a craft lager from Mexico. Uh, the four brands they're bringing in. Uh, there's a crossover IPA and a crisp blonde from Cerveza Urbana in Mexicali, and then uh, a Kolsch and a London-style ale uh, from Cerveza Re in Monterey. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and you know, obviously those are German and European styles of beer, but I mean, if you think about it, so are the craft beers of, of America. Right, you know, well, I mean, going crazy. yeah, I, I, on the old podcast I did, a, 
I did a one episode and we talked about how, you know, German brewers got to Mexico in the late 1800s, like where, you know, as brewing expanded across uh, the world in the uh, late 19th century, it was the German style brewing that was going Mm -hmm. where, where it expanded into. So that doesn't surprise me. I would, I would like a question. I have a question. Are these guys... 100% 100% independent, are they, this Quest Beverage, is it partially owned by a larger conglomerate? No, no, they're, they're, they're independent. Okay. As far okay. as I can tell, yeah. Yeah. And so they're, yeah, they're starting to get into it. Uh, and that's the challenge they're going to face is that, that market share. Um, but what's interesting is, and then, you know, talking about styles, uh, while Mexico doesn't have necessarily a, a specific style of beer, that a cerveza that they're going to export, it seems to be like you notice those those styles, the the, the crossover IPA, which is another word for a session, right. um, the blonde, those are all easy drinking, which kind of seems to be the style. And that seems to be what they're kind of banking on being able to market here. But, uh, you know, the growing with the growing Hispanic population here in the States, the the, the Mexican imports have really held their own, uh, even as the rest of, of beer sales have kind of flatlined. Um, not flatlined, but flattened out. Right. Um, like, uh, for instance, like Modelo. Yeah, right. Not flatlined at all. But uh, Modelo Especial, you know, held with five uh, percent of the market uh, share in 2018, for instance, and that's like an 18 percent climb for them uh, from the previous year. So, I mean, really, and I, I wasn't aware of this until I got into this story that the the Mexican imports have really held their own, uh, while a lot of the other big boys have really hit, taken hits. Mm. Um, and there's just, I mean, there just doesn't seem to be any end of it. I mean, you ask if there's room for these things. Uh, just, I mean, we, we look at it every every week that there's just an unbridled growth of craft here in the U.S. And there just doesn't seem to be any end or real saturation point uh, in sight. There just always seems to be room. Um, so, but yeah, so who, who knows if they'd, if they'd be able to take off here. All right. Well, these breweries, did you read anything about, I mean, how customer welcoming are they? I mean, do they have tap rooms? Are they based upon models of United States craft brews or uh, what, what, what did you see? Well, I saw, and then this is what they were doing. Uh, they basically, this, these quest guys, these, these, uh, these execs kind of auditioned uh, in, in a way. They said they, they had narrowed it down to like 12 different uh, breweries and they, they were looking for stories. Uh, okay. We, we talked about this before about how, how that kind of sells here in the States and which is crazy because I mean, there's so many stories, how many you hear it, but like, that's what really people seem to be wanting. Um, wh- one of them, I think I believe is, you know, two, two younger guys who have done it. And the other one is a, more of a family business, mm-hmm. but they, they, they're looking into the stories of the, of these beers uh, as well as kind of, kind of where they're from All right. and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think that's what they were looking at more than, more than anything. So I guess we're going to have to make a road trip down to Mexico at some point in time. I, I guess so, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> whatever the job dictates. Mexicali, that's down in Baja or just at the top of Baja, California, isn't it? I think, I think so. Yes. Yeah. That might not be a bad choice. Right. Yeah. Uh, Monterey, I believe is down. Oh, shoot. I'd have, I've, my Mexican geography is terrible. My <laughs> geography of Mexico, I should say, but I think Monterey's down on the, uh, the Gulf coast. Anyway, so anything else you got, Tony, that uh, we might want to know about Mexican craft brewing? Uh, nope. As long as they can, can get it over the wall, we'll, 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 get to be, uh, we'll get to try some new beers from Mexico, I guess. Or they can pass them through the slats. Exactly. Right. That's right. Yeah, one, yeah. one beer at a time. Right. Okay. All right, Tony Rehagen, <laughs> freelance journalist. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to chat with us. And Absolutely. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Alan. All right. See you now. Bye. All right. 
You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers! Well, folks, that's the show. I'm sorry about the voice. I, believe you me, I sound worse than I really am. Uh, so hopefully this will clear up uh, pretty quickly. So please follow us over on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruce Traveler Podcast. Send me a message. Tell me what you think of the show. If you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas, please let me know. Message me over on Facebook or Instagram, or if you'd rather, send me an email at cheers at thebruisetraveler.com. Please go over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It would mean so much. The soundtrack for The Bruised Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. You can check them out and see what's coming up for them in the 2019 tour schedule. They'll be right here in Jefferson City on August 29th. If you want to learn more about the band, check them out. GaelicStorm.com Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. <clears throat> so, until next week, unless I get laryngitis... If I don't see you at the pub or the tap room, I'll see you right here on the podcast. Drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, as always, you are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And so long for just a while. not the mountain that we conquer, but ourselves. Sir Edmund Percival Hillary, Knight of the Realm, Order of the Garter, Order of New Zealand, Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. Along with Tanzing Norgay, the first man to reach the summit of Mount Everest, the world's highest mountain. Born July 20th, 1919, Auckland, New Zealand, died January 11th, 2008, Auckland, New Zealand.